E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Andrea Fasoni of Anotria Wine Imports on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Levy. Thank you for having me. So you're originally from Torino? Yes. I was born in Torino and uh, soon moved just in the outskirts of the city because my father was uh, put in charge of a factory that was opening to manage the staff. And uh, so I grew up just outside of Torino, a few miles away. But then I went back to Torino to go to high school and then university. So my life always revolved around the city. What was Torino like in the 60s and 70s? Definitely smaller, definitely all for Fiat, that is the main car company that back then was really strong as a presence in the city. And uh, a lot of people think about Torino as a, a factory city because of Fiat. In reality, Torino was the capital of Italy when Italy was founded in 1861. As a matter of fact, there is still the palace. There was the Palace of the Parliament. We had the kings, the Savoia kings. So it's also an historical city. It was founded by the, the Romans. We still have uh, some uh, of the Romans' ruins. And uh, so it was, yes, revolving around, around the Fiat, uh, but it's, it's always been, uh, I think, a beautiful city. Were you into wine when you were growing up? or in, Not really, if not because my father was a wine lover. He, he also grew up in Torino, but originally was from Monferrato, and my mom was from... Uh, the southern part of Lange, and uh, so we we used to go often to visit the grandparents, uh, to, uh, just just to hang out during the weekend. But really often, like every other weekend, either Lange or Monferrato. My grandfather in Monferrato used to make wine, mostly Barbera, a little bit of Fruquet, because he was in Castagnola in Monferrato, and uh, so I was involved in that sense. My father was a wine lover. We always had wine at the table. I started drinking early. <laughs> And uh, th that was the way. So it was not a big interest, but was was part of my life. Uh, myself, I preserved that love. I was always visiting also wine sites, like going to Lange, going to Valpolicella, going to Montalcino, or something like that. So when did you move to the States? I moved uh, in 2001. I was uh, hired by a wine company. And uh, through a connection I had with a friend whose cousin was working here, we came here with my friend to visit in 1998. I liked very much the city. I, 
and didn't think for a second I was going to move here because what was the opportunity to? But actually, uh, in the year 2000, just seeing again this, uh, this friend, I said, hey, if you want to move here, we are looking for somebody. And I was like, why, why me? Anyway, I thought, why not? I was uh, in a period where I was working, mm, I don't know if I was happy or unhappy, what was I doing? But the uh, fact was that I, I would have been happy to, to come to, 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 to New York. So what uh, I did, I went through a couple of interviews, both in Italy, with the two partners of the, the company. It was one, one was an Italian and was so spending a lot of time in Italy. And the other in America that I met at the, in Italy 2001. And they told me, whenever you want to move, and after a couple of weeks, I was here. <laughs> Why do you think they picked you? I mean, it doesn't sound like you had a lot of wine background. I, I don't know. I really, I really don't, don't know. I, probably they saw somebody that was committed, honest. Could have maybe somebody that was going to be able to make it my personality, you know, in selling, you have to be outgoing, or at least it's better if you're outgoing. So probably that's what they have seen. And uh, I, don't know, I guess they like me. So you got to New York and what happened next? What happened next for uh, two, three months, I was waiting to, to put together my visa situation. So I actually went back to Italy, got the visa, came back here. It's now August 2001, and I started working. I did a couple of weeks of training, and then uh, I believe it was August 13th. I was on, on my own, by myself, bag, wines, go. <laughs> Business cards, and go. And, and what was that like for you? I mean, not knowing a lot about wine, and then suddenly you're asked uh, to open up accounts. Uh, I'm a curious person. I read a lot, so I made a plan for myself. I said, let's start visiting some people. The person that trained me told me what he was doing. And uh, so I... What was him. that? I mean, how do you open accounts when you don't know anybody? You do cold calls. So you walk in a place that eventually you have studied earlier. I always call it the detective technique. You, you read about the place. Back then, internet, yes, was around, but no, it was not that big. Uh, not a lot of blogs or not a lot of newspapers online, but... I remember I, I bought a couple of magazines that had uh, reviews about, uh, about restaurants. So uh, I was walking around. I made the plan for myself. A map, I remember I, I wrote down a map of the city, just doing avenues and streets. And then uh, I started visiting uh, a bunch of accounts. And while I was around, you know, you look, look around. Oh, there is a wine store there. Let's walk in. Oh, there is another restaurant there. Let's walk in. You take your note. You go back. And uh, eventually you start sampling. And I remember August 29th, I opened the first two accounts. It was one a store and one was a restaurant. They're both gone. <laughs> but it was um, a regional Italian book, right? I mean, a little French, a little Spanish, but mostly not big, well-known brand names from Italy, right? Yes, yes, th that's right. A lot of small estates, uh, yes. Branding, yeah, there were a couple of brands that were known, but... Definitely, there was a lot of uh, work on our side to go, to go out, present uh, this, the, the portfolio, the states, and, and having the ability to sample and, and talk about the wineries and the wines. You know, I think a lot of times when in an earlier time, people would have thought, huh, regional wines of Italy, not so interesting to me. Like, I'm interested in things that are going to sell more. So I can imagine that being a tough intro. I think it was a moment right then, I don't have an earlier experience, so I, I don't know, but uh, where people started to be attracted to 
those indigenous varietals that uh, they were not popular in in New York, but neither in Italy. Because living living Torino in the period, I remember wine lists being eighty or more percent wines from Piemonte, then a little bit of Tuscany and a little bit of uh, Valpolicella, not even Veneto. Yeah, maybe some Prosecco, of course, but maybe not even. So Primitivo or Nero Davola, Cannonà were were not popular, not even in Torino or not that much. So coming here was a kind of a similar experience, but I would say probably New York was more open-minded to that. There was uh, whatever big city in Italy, because even going around Italy, you can see in, uh, in Venice, mostly wines from Veneto, and going to Friuli, the wines from Friuli, going to Firenze, the wines from Tuscany. So everything was, was very regional. And uh, so coming here and, and Having the ability to present those indigenous grapes, indigenous wines, was actually exciting in the way that we were ambassador of something, some territory, some grapes, somebody making still those original grapes from their tradition. And so, yeah, it was was interesting to to be able. Yes, the reception was most of the time not interested, difficult to sell, but I could tell then there were a lot of young Italians or American chefs that were going toward the Italian cuisine, the authentic one, if I can say so. So the regional one, uh, American chefs that have traveled to Italy to learn and uh, brought back uh, all the experience they accumulated or Italian chefs coming here. So bringing regional cuisine was also for them a selling point to match with regional uh, wines. So I would say that there was... I could see then a moment of uh, transition and more open mind attitude toward uh, Italian wines. So was some of that generational? As younger people came up, they were a little more interested in... I guess so. Generational, cultural, yes. but And also sort of a, bi- a business plan. You know, I'm going to cook cuisine from Sicily. I want to carry a... Um, Insolia and uh, Nero Davolas, for example. But uh, I have seen then uh, people that were doing like, I am from this region, I'm going to have almost all the wines I can carry from uh, from that area, like 50 Aglianicos or uh, 30 Negromaro, 20 Primitivo, stuff like that. So you started to see people doing that. And a lot of times those wines were a little less expensive. I mean, the book you were working with was, most of it was pretty cheap, right? Yes, 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 besides the, the usual expensive. Uh, yeah, there were a lot, a lot of wines that were, were I, I think, really good values. They could have been by the glass, and, and they were by the glass. That was actually, I think, the way that a lot, we and the restaurateur broke uh, the ice. Kind of now by the glass, and Arnais by the glass, stuff like that, uh, La Grain by the glass. And uh, so there was a way, hey, you're asking me for the usual Chianti or the Pinot Grigio? Try this. And uh, so I, I think that was the way in, to break the ice. Were there grapes or regions that originally you didn't see as that popular that became more and more popular over the time you were working with them? Some grapes, they were not popular in Italy either. Like one that I can think is Pecorino. I remember about 10 years ago, around maybe 12 years ago, I heard about this winery from Mark, we are going to make pecorino. And of course, everybody jokes about the cheese. And uh, no, it was, was this white grape that nobody had really planted anymore or was just blended in a, in a white blend, if not a red wine. And, uh, and they started to take care of uh, this grape again and so on. There was a clear example. 
Also, I, th- I think in, in the matter that the technology helped the Italian winemakers to to vinify some of the tough, hard to vinify grapes that they couldn't handle earlier. So to be able to pull out some better wines. Sometimes I also think that if some grapes disappeared, there was a reason. Maybe they were not that good, so there was not a reason to to have them back. But I mean, it must have been tough times in Italy after two world wars and economic depression and phylloxera kind of all hitting. It must have been tough for some things probably got lost. In that matter, I, I sort of saw that because my parents were both born during the Second World War in the early 30s. So uh, I actually used to love sitting at the table. We often had family reunions and uh, listening to those uh, World War One and World War Two stories because my grandfather on my father's side, he was in World War One, And uh, so I, I heard a lot of the stories and I have seen them overcoming those difficulties. And even though my parents were not involved in farming business, but uh, I could see already then how, what type of struggle it was. And not only, also what a, a beautiful new life after Second World War to what they, they called the, the boom, the, the, the Italian boom, you know, to revamp an economy and uh, to overcome the disgrace that was uh, World War II. And uh, later on, I've seen it like, talking in depth with a uh, winemaker, wine producer, also what they have done. I hear story, I, I'm pretty familiar with the Lange wine area, uh, that uh, they were in a bad place up to 25, 30 years ago. And uh, they were really farmers and they were really struggling. Now, we might think uh, Barolo, Barbaresco, all these fancy wines, but a lot, a lot of those families, number one, back then, they were not only Barolo and Barbaresco, but they were like hazelnuts growers, cherry growers, whatever type of fruit they could grow, vegetable growers. They were a farm 100%. And some of them, few of them, they, they still do that. But what they see more now, and of course, they focus on the wine business. Well, if they are good, they can be successful and, and make a good amount of money. But... Um, Hearing the story from the, the parents or the, the, those grandparents are still around, you can see all over Italy what the type of struggle it was definitely for them to overcome such difficult times. And you encountered some difficult times in New York because you got here and then September 11 happens pretty quickly after. Yes, is uh, after four weeks after I, I started on my own, as I, as I said earlier, yeah, uh, September 11 happened. I, I have a very clear picture of the day. I, I went to the bank early in the morning, as soon as they opened it on, I guess, I 9 a.m. I used to live in, uh, in Carroll Gardens then. And uh, I was walking back home, and I see this smoke toward Manhattan. And I hear uh, sirens, a lot of sirens, firefighters, ambulance. And I wonder what's going on. So I go home and, uh, and I'm ready to get dressed, go take the subway and come to the city to start my day with my, my bag and my wines. And uh, I, op- I just turn on the TV just to see what's going on, but not really thinking, oh, let me see what's going on. And what's going on, they are talking about uh, one airplane hit the, one of the Twin Towers and then right away is the, is the second. And at that point, of course, I see, I realize it, but it's not very clear in my mind. I, I get dressed anyway and I walk toward the subway. Subway is closed. Meanwhile, a lot of the smoke is coming toward Brooklyn. And, uh, 
And so Leo said, let me go. And see. So I know what's going on. And I walked toward the Brooklyn promenade. And uh, while I walked there, uh, both towers uh, collapsed. And uh, ashes, piece of paper, so everything is flying toward Brooklyn. So I go to the Brooklyn promenade. It's, it's all foggy. And uh, it's, there is a pretty realization of a disaster. I walk, I walk back home. And then uh, phones are down. Internet, I still had a dial-up internet, so it's down. Uh, the only thing that I have, the TV, I watch a little bit of this, this news, and uh, it's pretty sad. And uh, anyway, the day after, I decide to go to the city, and the city is like a war zone. Up to 14th Street, I believe, there were tanks, police, army, National Guard. I had uh, a lot of friends afterwards telling me they couldn't access their house for months. It was pretty bad. So the next couple of days, I walk around, I try to see some accounts. But yes, Uptown is different. It's like nothing happened, really. And uh, it's just a little bit like what happened for Sandy. You know, downtown, the, the a disaster. <laughs> Up, uptown, kind of okay. So, um, but everybody's talking about uh, my business is going to go down. It's going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. So I start thinking, what am I going to do? I, I just started here. So I have two options. One, uh, go back home. And two, stay here and uh, work hard and, and see what I can do. Option one is, is a no. I don't want to go back home. I, I was very excited in the first place to come here. I want to make it here. I want to stay here. And uh, I want to try. My, my boss is very gracious. He calls a meeting right after, probably the week after, and says, uh, hey, we are all here together. Let's work. Let's get out. Let's do our best. I'm going to support you. And let's make it happen. And what happens is uh, that I decide that I to go out and visit as many, do as many cold calls I can. I, I collected about 500 business cards, and uh, by in, by the end of those three months, I opened about 20 accounts, probably exactly 20. So I see it's working, and the situation around is getting a little bit better. Business are are, are getting back on their feet, so. I can do it. And from then on, there was a turning point because I realized into such a big tra tragedy and such a, a difficult moment, uh, you know, the human being can, can really push and, and make it an overcome. And I think was a turning point probably, we'll see, my life. Because after that, after a couple of years, I was the best selling rep. And then they asked me to travel around the United States to represent the portfolio as a sales manager. And then... Uh, I went to school to NYU and uh, continuing education for a couple of years in the evening to improve my knowledge or to get some knowledge about managing and communication, became general sales manager. And uh, so I had a pretty decent career for somebody that came from Italy, like, uh, what am I going to do here? And so who are some of the key restaurant relationships that you formed over time? I mean, who are some of the people that you developed relationships with as customers that were longstanding? One for sure, Il Buco, with, with Roberto, that is still a really good friend. Some of uh, the people that uh, worked at the Bastianic group, and uh, even the smaller accounts. Like, for example, uh, Bread, that is a place in Nolita that opened exactly when I started in August 2001, became an account of mine after a few months, and the owner is my best man. 
So there are relationships that that's the, the beautiful part of our business where, you know, business becomes also personal relationship and, uh, and so it's beautiful. I, I, th I think it is the best or one of the best part of our business. And what was it like traveling to different parts of the country? I mean, I probably imagine that you saw different environments for Italian wine. How did those differ to what you'd seen in New York? Uh, number one, traveling was great because I love traveling. So I was I had the ability to to visit a lot of uh, the cities and the states. As an Italian, you have seen in movies or read about it. And uh, so it was great traveling. And uh, just to tell you, I went for four years every month for a week to San Francisco. That is not a bad place to go. Of course, I was working there, but uh, as a I, I love San Francisco as a, as a beautiful city. So it was an opportunity to see San Francisco and to travel around. I used to go to Sacramento, Los Angeles, along the coast, Carmel, Monterrey. Yes, to sell wine, but also looking around and enjoying nature. Then I visited Texas, Georgia, Florida, Washington, D.C. and surrounding area, Boston and Massachusetts, Chicago. So I've seen a lot of uh, the big American cities. As per the wine scene, what? so it was about 10 years ago. Yeah, there was even more difficult to see those unusual grapes. And uh, so... Traveling, I even felt more as an ambassador of Italian wines. And that first pushed me to read much more about Italian wines, to learn much more about Italian wines, to ask much more many questions when I used to go to Italy to visit wineries or to the Vinitaly Fair. And uh, so coming back with information and, and try to spread those information also because, for example, in... Uh, in Georgia and in Texas, we used to deal with uh, big companies. And so meetings with a lot of sales reps, like 50 reps. So you really have the feeling that you're going to pass some information. And so you try to do your best uh, to, to pass uh, as many as you can, as uh, you, to be as truthful as you can. And uh, yes, it was difficult to, to bring there some of those unusual grades that we mentioned earlier. We, we we did a good job. We made it happen. And yes, it was mostly Montepulciano and Chianti and Sangiovese or Pinot Grigio. But something else went through, like the Tokai back then, the Friulano that I can think, Refosco, or uh, let me think, Primitivo, uh, Negromaro, Aglianico. So some of the unusual. And did you find that it was a market where you're essentially selling to other Italians, or is it a market where there was more interest from American consumers? It was definitely more Italian business-driven. As per my clients, it was definitely directed mostly to Italians. And uh, while well, we were talking a lot about niche wine, it is a niche wines. As per final consumers, no, it was definitely a lot of Americans. So right there too, also, there was the, the meaning of doing stuff trainings. Don't forget that the figure of a sommelier is kind of recent, even in New York, if you allow me to say so. I don't remember a lot of sommelier 10, 12, 15 years ago, mostly in the Italian restaurant side. In the French, yes, like La Cotbas, La Caravelle, Lutez, yes, they used to have the sommelier or more than one. Some of American places as well, but like... Gramercy, Tavern, as an example. But in the Italian restaurants, they were not... A lot of sommeliers. So 
I have to say, so sommelier have been really useful to spread the voice with their knowledge. But before that, was mostly about sales rep or distributing company holding some uh, some tough training and, and discussing those wines, those grapes, opening bottles, tasting, and going through the geography and the history and so on. So what we did is mostly through Italian accounts, we did those tough, tough training and so on. Then eventually that voice spread it through the final consumer. So to answer to your question, mostly American consumers. And when you would visit the producers, did you find changes in the regions developing? If I have to talk as a consumer of Italian wine, so we can go back about 30 plus years, I definitely notice a, a huge improvement in quality. I tend to say that uh, 30 years ago, if not 40 years ago, 35 years ago, 80% of the Italian wines were pretty bad, 20% of the Italian wines were good or really good. Now is the opposite and way over the opposite. Most of the Italian wines are, are good wines. Example, well, the cooperatives now in Italy has a lot of cooperatives. Back then we were called Cantina Sociale, like social seller, where everybody used to bring the grapes and, and squeeze and make some juice. And the quality was, was not good. It was like pretty poor. Now the quality in cooperatives and in some areas very much is, is really good, great, excellent. But even through, through small producer and going back to what we discussed earlier, they were coming from bad periods, so they didn't have opportunity to do better, they didn't know better. Technology has helped a lot. Nice press, soft press, and uh, stainless steel vats, cleaner environment. So that uh, has been helpful. So that in general is what I have seen in the Italian wine business. So quality going much, much higher. A lot of times I think in the press that those kind of rises in quality were associated with the famous consulting analogists. But when I look at your book and then the book you used to work with before, I don't see a lot of those kinds of wines where they're kind of the star power analogists. Did you see it more as small producers were just gaining more knowledge on their own? or The idea when I started my selection in 2008 was... Uh, Family-owned wineries, small to medium size, indigenous grapes, very honest, committed wine producer that it's just they just express what is their terroir. That was the vision, and um, the idea of going after two big consultant technologists, I mean, has never been a no or a yes. Just what happened that the vision was was different just to try to reach those type of sources and uh, go and taste and talk and walk the vineyards and, and go and, and look at the barrels and taste from the, the vats and open an older vintage open the current vintage even though it's not released all, all those stuff because also for me is a must i visit all the wineries i represent now myself and i i, I walk through the vineyards i talk to them i spend time with them that, that is a must and uh, and so that that was the main point and, and and trust me i've done a lot of kilometers in italy i've tended to a lot of tastings tasting a lot of wines for my own knowledge and also for the reason that uh, when i select something I want to be sure that it's something that fits my concept that I like first and that I can sell. That is a good price. That is a correct price, I would say. And uh, that is uh, the whole point. So having a consultant, a logist, uh, doesn't matter. You have it, it's okay. You don't, you don't have it, let's see what you have to offer. 
Why did you decide to start your own business? Because in uh, January 2008, I go to my boss and I say, okay, I basically climb the ladder to, to the top. Now, I have a little amount of money and uh, I would like to buy a percentage, whatever, 0.5, 1%, 2% of your company. And he thought it was a very good idea. Yes, let's talk about it. And March was like, yeah, I have to see with my accountant, uh, there's some issues, and then may, maybe not. And then uh, I, I lost a little bit of the passion, let's say, the interest in like what's going on here. Yeah, I can stay here. I, w- I was fine. I was making good money. I liked the people. I liked what I was doing. Probably I just saw the, the possibility to go further. And so I decided to, to open my own company. And uh, I resigned in September 2008. And uh, I gave uh, two months notice. And in, uh, in November, I was on my own. End of December, I received my first uh, 40 feet container. And, uh, and then I started by myself with uh, all the connection I had. They were important, of course. You need, if, you, if you're selling wine, you need an outlet. And so I started by myself. And then right after, I hired my first rep that is still with me. And then uh, I, went on, I went on and on. And uh, now we have a t- team of seven people selling, including me, because I still have uh, some accounts. But starting in 08, I feel like that was a period of financial decline for New York in general, the country. Yeah. Not as uh, September 11, there was a big tragedy, but definitely in September 2008, there was a crash in the stock market. And uh, I have to say that luckily this starting vision helped because I decided to have wines that were good and well-priced, so good values. And uh, some of the wineries eventually I wanted to have with me, they were not available because they were with other importers. So I started with a dozen of producers and uh, I went out and a lot of those wines were in the by the glass price range. So I had those placements that I needed to move wine and to pay for the first container and to, to have another coming in and so on and on. Then, as I said, another person joined me to, to sell and, uh, and so Definitely in the bad period, uh, what was helpful and it was, or lucky, was the choice to have good stuff at good prices. And it was probably helpful that you weren't sitting on a lot of stock, that you didn't have a warehouse full of wine. One of the ideas at the beginning was, and actually talking to a colleague importer that just opened like a year before me, I was like, do I open with three, four wineries and I carry more uh, stock like instead of 100 cases let's say 200 cases or i i want to have a, a little bit wider portfolio and said that 12 wineries is still still a little amount but i went for the second option because i thought that my clientele would have had more opportunity to look into my selection with a little bit uh, a diverse selection of, of wines instead of having just a few wines so that was the idea. And yes, uh, eventually you face the auto stock. <laughs> so somebody is in love with some specific wine and say, hey, I don't have it. It's coming in 15 days. It's coming in a month. And you work with the, the, patience, the patience of the buyer. And where you have good relationship, they understand. And they say, don't worry about it. And uh, with, where you don't have those relations, they move on and they, they pick something else. And then it's going to be your turn. Somebody else is going to be out of stock. And then you come in and then say, hey, I have it back. All right. 
might be your turn. But again, you focused on regional wines as opposed to some of the heavy hitters from Barolo, Amarone, Tuscany. I mean, you have wines from Piemonte and Tuscany, but it seems like you really focused once again on a diverse portfolio all up and down Italy. And when we started, also there was the option, what is available? Because a lot of the wineries were taken. So we explored those options, and uh, out of, I don't remember, 25, maybe 30 wineries I have tasted and uh, and then visited, I said, okay, let's start with this. And uh, yes, there was a Brunello producer that was started with me here in New York, and is still with me. And uh, I had a couple of uh, wineries from Piemonte, and uh, not Barolo, not Barbaresco. And uh, yes, I didn't have those big names. I didn't have a Chianti. I don't think I had a Prosecco since day one. No, I did not. I tasted it, but they were not ready and so on, so I did not have it. So we went for Morellino di Scansano as an alternative to Sangiovese. We had a Roero instead of Barbaresco. We had uh, so something that was for me, I was just fine. I was used to, I was trained to go out and sample those stuff. So there was, I, I met the people. So I really, really was like, I picked you. I want to represent you. I'm going to make it happen. That doesn't mean that all those wineries are still with me because something didn't work eventually and we moved on. And I would say also, my vision didn't really change, but uh, improved. Maybe I noticed that lately when I select a wine, I, if the wine gives me a sense of place, I, it really hits me, it really strikes me. And it happened a couple of times recently. One with the Slovenian winery. I tasted uh, Dusseldorf, a Provine. And I was like, this juice is really the grape. This juice is really the soil. I, I want to go to see. And I went. After six months, I went. I went to visit him. And I started to carry the wines. Second, a winery from Sicily. Hey, you want to come to taste some Nero Davola? And I said, nah, no, thank you. <laughs> not interested, not attracted. Maybe it was a little bit of prejudgment there for sure. I said, no, please come, come. They also make Moscato di Noto. Ah, let's go. So I went and I tasted through the lineup and uh, I was like, wow, I want to visit them. Again, that sense of place. I want to see there was the soil, there was the sea, there was the salt, there were the flowers, there was the honey. There was there were some stuff that I said. So in that sense, uh, from the starting point now, I'm much more focused on, on that. When something is really the grape, the soil, the weather, the people. So that is now what I'm going for. What had drawn you to that was the fact that they made a Moscato de Noto and that was somewhat rare. For me, yes, it was like more than the Nero Davola, that uh, as we know has uh, become pretty much common, was Moscato di Noto. Instead, it's a small area. Also, they make it dry and they make it sweet. So when they said that, I said, yeah, let me see. And a little lesson what was taught there also. Don't, don't prejudge only because somebody says, hey, we make a, a Chianti or a Montepulciano, then you may think, oh, no. It's a little bit snobbish, right? And uh, just go. And... That has always been my attitude, but sometimes, you know, you have your downside. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, another winery to taste. Oh, no, another wine to taste. I see that from the buyer's side. We say, hey, you want to taste this Nero Dublin? No, no, thank you. Please taste it. I really wanted you to taste it. And you start talking about your own experience. So eventually the person gets some interest in and then you get into taste. Right? And yes, the Moscato di Noto, <laughs> thank God. 
brought me to that uh, booth. But I imagine if you're representing all those different regions of Italy, that's a lot of driving and travel for you. I mean, it's not like you just fly into Bordeaux, visit the producers in the area. And there is back. a little bit of everything. There is, yes, going to wine fairs. Like I've never been to Bordeaux. That actually is happening these days. Provine I've been. I've been in Italy several times. Merano Wine Festival. Lately at the Grandi Lange. So I go to those events also to see what's going on in the wine world. And there you have the option to taste hundreds of wines. So you see other producers represented by other people, what they do. You see people that don't have any representation and check them out. Eventually you're not interested. You already have the type of wine. You don't want to cannibalize one of your uh, your wineries. But then, yes, I, I love traveling. So for me, it's a pleasure to go. But it's also a must. It's an obligation I have to go, to check what they do, where they are, and so on. And also, the bottom line goes to, to trust and to truth. Because sometimes, you know, we, we, we might say some stories that are not real. No, I want to I wanna check. I want to put my finger into it. I want to know. And also, I want to get in touch with you, wine grower, in a different way. Because when you go to their house, their environment, and you know what it means, the table or the dining room, when they cut uh, their own piece of cheese or piece of prosciutto or salami that they have made, or that the wife or the mother prepares a meal for you, is all a different setting. That sometimes didn't help me, and i tell you why. Sometimes I've picked wineries because I like the people, and I thought the wines were better than they were. So that, that's where I learned the lesson that was like, why did I buy these wines? I have them here now. Uh, I'm not really happy with this wine because uh, I was not uh, business-minded. I was like more feeling-minded. I, I put my sentiment into the moment, and I was like, oh, I like these people. They are really nice people. Their wines are good. And I didn't focus on taste. And now something that I have developed definitely is something like take a few seconds, focus on the wine that you're tasting. Focus on everything you're doing. The glass, because sometimes they, they give you like a water glass to taste their wines. They're like, you're crazy. The temperature, where you are, what you're eating with all these little details that at the bottom line, you're going to start to import hundreds of thousands of bottles, and then you have them here, and you're not happy. And yes, you feel bad for those families because you like them. But unfortunately, it's not something that you really feel, and you really don't want to go out. And for me, the problem is also passing this to my sales force and to my clients or potential clients. Because if I don't like it, chances are that they will see my body language and I'll say, this guy is talking about something that he doesn't really believe. So that is a lesson that I have learned. So yes, I want to meet you people. I want to talk with you, but let me detach for a second or a few seconds and, and make my decision or send, take some honest notes and then read them and say, is that really what I'm looking for? And I imagine that sometimes pricing is difficult. You know, if you're trying to have a lot of values in a book, some lower price things going for wine by the glass, I imagine sometimes you encounter producers who want to charge more than would make that possible. And that's the fight. That's when the, the fight starts. One of the first visits I've done in, uh, in the 2008, they asked for a price. And right away I thought, never going to sell that wine, that weird grape for that price. So right away I reply, this must be the price. Otherwise we cannot do business. And uh, the wife and the husband left for a little bit. 
they came back and said, okay, let's start like that and let's see how it goes. And, you know, when they've seen the first year selling 4,000 bottles of that wine in their grave, they were happy. So thank God they accepted and they understood and was good for me and it was good for them. Some other times, you you know, you talk and you, and you deal. It's a cooperation. It's a chain. You Yes, you make the wine, and uh, I understand how much you spend to make the wine. But if I bring it over for a price that is not the real value of the wine, I'm never going to sell it. And I can acknowledge that, uh, you know, you're doing low harvest. You are using the best oak. You are handpicking, so paying some workers to unpick and and stuff. So I'm going to put that into account. But then we go to a bottom line where your wine has to be sold. And if I cannot sell it, then uh, I'm going to be eventually a lover and a collector of your wines. And for instance, I have a winery from Val d'Aosta I really liked. But I've, I thought I'll never be able to sell this wine. And I bought six bottles and <laughs> put them in my cellar. So the guy was like, oh, wow, you only all six Well, I'm sorry, but you told me that we can know under those, those prices. And I understand it. And I'm not going to argue about it. And uh, so if we cannot go below, I'm going to be your fan, but I'm not going to represent you because I, I cannot sell your wines. And I imagine, you know, you, you mentioned now that it's important to taste the grape and the soil of the place. But I imagine that in the past, there have been periods of time where that was less important in the market, where people were looking for different things. Have you seen a change in what consumers or sommeliers tend to be looking for from Italy? That still happens. That still happens. Some wines are pretty anonymous. Mostly when you go with that fashion of uh, international grapes and blends in some areas of Italy, in a lot of areas of Italy. So... Some producers decide that they want to go that way. But uh, I think with the evolution of taste, and I'm not talking only about wine, but cuisine as well, that uh, definitely we have seen in New York, but uh, I would say all over the world, thank you to this great chef and master chef and so on, is leading and led to more fine palates. So I think, uh, you know, people are attracted by by these uh, different let's call it like that type of wines and uh, like for example italians wines italian wines tend to be dry earthy and it's something that for some people is kind of disturbing they want a fruity they want a smooth kind of fruity sugary and uh yes in some cases it's difficult to to pass those wines along but uh, some other people and more are attracted by those unique gems do you think that there are, amongst producers in Italy, that there's more interest in indigenous grape varieties? Or does it just seem like that here? There is definitely interest. Also because for them, could be a, a selling point. Like, uh, I produce what is the fruit of my land. And that's actually what I see amongst uh, some some younger winemakers where, where they picked up the business from the father of their grandfather. Uh, how are we going to be a business? Yeah, okay, we're going to make wine, but then we have to sell it in order to make money. So one of their selling points is I use the grapes that are indigenous of this land. So they, they, some of them, they tend to stick to that, as well as is a selling point to do blends, international brands. You know, we're going to appeal this type of clientele and some people go other direction. Or I've noticed 
as an Italian, I know that we follow fashions and in the wine business too. I would say in the last 20 years, there was the period of barrique, everybody barrique. In Italian, we say vino barricato and saying vino barricato was the meaning of quality for some people. So Barbera barricato, dolcetto barricato. Of course, I'm talking about Piemonte. So I'm sure that in France, they made a lot of money off it in those years. Then there was a period of blending. Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet, Petit Syrah, Petit Verdot, and so on. Then uh, I would see, I would say that now is a trend of residual sugar, making wines that have the, that finish that is, you know, a little bit sweet, easy, smooth. I don't like that. <laughs> anyway, instead of a lot of people, they're staying truthful. They say, these are the grapes, that's what we're going to do, and we do our best. So. And what have been the big surprises in terms of regions or grapes that you weren't familiar with before recently? My, my love is uh, extreme winemaking. So mountain vineyards, Valle d'Aosta, Valtellina, Alto Adige, Etna, or something I've seen in, in Sardinia, on the beach, on sand. I've seen also in, uh, in, in uh, Ciro, stuff like that. I like uh, to see how wine making in Italy has been so ingrained in the culture at whatever level we discussed earlier you know they were not making great wines then but was a source of food it was a source of calories so they were still making not that good but in order to drink them so it's been so ingrained that you see some sites that is like what are they doing here with the winery I remember I was in Val d'Aosta to Red Superior Two rows of vines at one, about 1,000 meters above the sea level, and then two rows, just these two rows, and then a big drop down. It's like, why? It was a family that had these two rows of vines, was able to make an amount of bottles that were excellent for them to, to, you know, to sustain them. And uh, so that is great. When you go to Valtellina and you see that left side of the valley with all those terraces, and still these days, a lot of the producers that we see that they put their labels on um, their names on the bottles, they outsource from a lot of growers that have uh, half an hectare, a quarter of an hectare. And then, you know, they work like little corporate with, little, with a contract, say, you're going to grow the grapes, I'll come and check quality, and then we'll pick and we'll make a wine under my label. So that, that is what is, has been very attractive to me to see how this Wine culture is ingrained in, in the farming culture and uh, is very fascinating. In terms of wines that were ageable wines, what did you find for wines in terms of length of bottle aging that may have surprised you? What has gotten better and better in the bottle, whereas you might not have thought I, it would? I think mostly the white wines. The, the, the surprise was that. Because years ago in Italy, we never thought about aging white wines in bottles. Yes, we knew about the Barolo. For example, I, I remember in, my father had some 1960s, some 1970s Barolo in the cellar. And we are talking about end of the 90s, beginning of 2000, just before I moved. So, yes, I knew about Barolo. I knew about Chateauneuf de Pape. I knew about some other grapes, other red wines that you could age. But the surprise, talking about Italian wines, came from the white wines. And uh, you could see in some areas where they were able to make white wines 
long lasting, like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I think we have to go back to technology. In some cases, they, they were not able to preserve the wine, so the results were off white wines after after a while. And of course, about, about terroir, because when we go to Friuli or Alto Adige or somewhere like Soave, we go to Marche for the Verdicchio, I mentioned if you, you can really see some white wines that can great potential in the bottle. And what about the challenges back home? Is it difficult in the market to sell these kind of wines? What's the competition like and where do you see yourself fitting in? It is just because of the fact that uh, there are a lot of wines here, starting from wines from all over the world. So for the final consumer, maybe a Malbec is not a big difference from a Montepulciano when it's a $7.99 or $8.99 on the shelves. And then if we go specifically into the Italian wine business, yes, the competition is fierce. And I am one of the cause because the competition is fierce, because opening in 2008, I opened one of those small companies, just like uh, a lot of my colleagues, former sales reps, uh, uh, opened uh, in the business. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just part of the nature of this business. Uh, we, are, we are in New York. I think everybody is competing. Restaurants are competing. Wine stores are competing. And we are competing as well. And the beauty of it, because if I can bring here... Uh, I don't know, a collier winery. Maybe I can bring two or three or four. So as a sommelier, as a wine buyer, as a retailer, you want to have a wider selection, so you will outsource from different importers and distributors. So yes, as a downside, but also the, the nice part is that we can bring in really a representative selection of Italian wines. So now you're in a position of hiring sales reps. When you hire sales reps, what do you look for in them? I mean, it sounds like when you started... They weren't necessarily looking for wine knowledge in, in you, and yet it worked out quite well. What do you look for in sales reps who apply to work for you? Yeah, probably the same thing that my bosses found in me, the personality. Meaning that you have to be outgoing, number one. You have to be a hard worker. You have to be able to overcome issues. So once, ten, about 10 years ago in San Francisco, I, I hired a gymnast. And my boss told me, why are you hiring this lady? Because she was able for years, day in and day out, to practice and make it happen. We're going to teach her something about wine. We're going to teach her something how to approach accounts and so on. And worked out well. So here you have an art worker, committed person that uh, loves what she does. I'm talking about gymnastic. Yeah? Let's see if, if she can translate that into the wine business. So that's what you need. My first... Uh, my first rap was and still is an actor, mostly theater actor. Yes, of course, there you, have, you see the personality in the person. But he's uh, graduated in economy, so he understands business, he understands organization, he understands managing, and worked out really well. I mean, he has very good numbers and so on. So I think also that's what you see in New York. You see people that uh, eventually they are not fit immediately for, for a job, but uh, as a tailor, you start to... And even cut a little bit, and and you can uh, do that. On the other side, I've seen sometimes people with very good knowledge of wine being poor sales rep because their communication skills, they're going to the accounts, calling, uh, doing cold calls. It's very cold in New York. It's very hot in New York. It's rainy. It's this, the competition, and so on. It's not your job. 
as you grow your own company, what's next for you? Next more for me is expanding. And I am actually working, expanding in what direction? Expanding the portfolio. Eventually we have uh, three, four interesting things coming in the fall. These days actually, and in the fall, eventually hire some more people to work in your state and going out of state. So basically going back to what I did when I was in a former company. So doing being importer for some distributors. We already have started that in a couple of areas. We are actively working to expand that, doing some partnership eventually. So the idea is, uh, again, to be the ambassador, I've said earlier, in a, in a wider in a wider area, so approaching more states. And for what I hear, because I don't travel as much as a business person, but uh, I see or I talk to people, I think the country is readier than was 10 years ago to accept those graves. And uh, also what I said about chefs, you know, some chefs, they were in New York and they go to Nashville to open a restaurant. They go to Cleveland to open a restaurant. Or they were in San Francisco and then they go to, I don't know, some other states like Utah or Colorado. And they have good food. They have excellent food. They have authentic regional food. They wanted the ones to go with. So I think it's the right time. This is why I'm pushing toward that direction these days. And do you see yourself carrying wines not from Italy, or is it always going to be an Italy focus? I would say that Italy is and has been my expertise since I, you know, I, I traveled, I drank, I tasted, I met, I read <laughs> about Italian wines. And though I spent some time getting a sommelier degree with the sommelier, American Sommelier Association, so in those classes you approach much more French wines, American wines. But it's definitely more my area of expertise. And we have a Slovenian winery, but we kind of consider it a little bit Italian, where one third of their vineyards are in Italy. But it could go in, the, in that direction, but uh, I am not that sure. I think uh, I like uh, the idea of representing my country, and I want to do my best, so I will keep focus, I'll keep studying, I'll keep reading, i keep tasting. And uh, i probably stick with Italian wines. Do you see a different market for Italian wines in retail than in restaurants? And if so, how? Mm, yes. And, uh, okay, I said yes right away, but uh, sometimes, most of the times. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's because of the support that the client gets in the store versus the restaurant, as we discussed earlier. We have a lot of sommelier or people that have knowledge on the floor now that can help you to go through a, a list that maybe has hundreds of wines. So if you are open-minded and you will ask, I've never heard about this region or of this wine, what can you tell me? Somebody is there for you. In stores, I see in New York, in the New York metro area, that happening too, where you have very knowledgeable people working in stores, probably though, it's a work in progress and more in restaurants than in, in, in stores. So... The point is that as a consumer, I walk into a store and I'm not familiar with some of these uh, unique grapes, chances are I will pick something I'm comfortable with. It probably is still what happens in restaurants when people don't want to ask somebody, can you help me with this wine list? They will probably still go for the usual ones. Instead, if they ask, they get help. So that's where I see the difference. Andrea Fassoni, he's been seeing the difference for Italian wine for a number of years. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levi. Andrea Fassoni of Anotria Wine Imports.
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.